0: Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? I'm doing quite well. Hey, John, we've got a very special guest with us today, David Carlson. And let me just tell you a little bit about David. I met him uh, about a week and a half ago. He gave a presentation at the John Michael Kohler Arts Center about uh, incarcerated people. And their. some people, as you know, have the right to vote because they're not felons. But he's also talked about... Of, uh, a lot of projects that he's got going on and he's actually in an entrepreneurial ca- capacity started a for-profit business that um it seeks to be inclusive with people educating people about their voting rights and so forth so david uh welcome to the show
1: yeah, thank you for having me
0: okay well so first of all can you just tell us um a little bit about the organization that you've started and the activities that you've been doing lately
1: absolutely so um The organization that, um, the first organization I started is a LLC, so for-profit business um, called CC We Adapt. Um, It is, our focus is peer support and mentorship. So we contract, we have contracts to work in 14 counties in the Western region of Wisconsin. Um, We serve over hundred participants at this point. Um, These participants come out of, mainly come out of comprehensive community services, which is a program that's under uh, Department of Human Services in every county um, throughout Wisconsin, and so um, we use uh, our specific uh, blend of services has to do with physical activity, mountain biking, kayaking, weightlifting, um, running, and um, forming a connection through that and then working on um, different therapeutic needs that an individual may have that comes to us. A lot of the kids and adults that we work to work with come, come to us from uh, incarceration or on, on the path to becoming incarcerated. Or have you know other mental health challenges or addiction challenges that um, this blend of services has seemed to work pretty well with?
0: I want to go back in back in history a little bit because I know that you have an unusual background. An unusual meaning that you were uh, you are a formerly incarcerated person yourself, and you've been quite through quite a lot. If you wouldn't mind just kind of explaining the path you went through uh, to get where you are today, that would be great.
1: Absolutely. So um, I was born into a uh, pretty chaotic home. Um, my my father and the other relatives that were, the adults that were in the home at that time were all in, involved in different criminal activities. Um, I had a lot of half brothers, sisters, that we all lived together under pretty, um, um, what would be traumatic um, conditions and circumstances. And my mom ran from my dad uh, because of abuse. Around the, when they, around when I was around the age of five or six and um, and then that just turned into um, almost nine years of, of just um, moving around running um, instability in my life and so about 10 years old I started acting out some of those behaviors myself um, ended up in group homes, ended up arrested several different times and then when I was 14 ended up getting arrested turned myself in actually for a crime. I was wanted for burglary and uh, because I was just tired of, I'd been on the street for maybe three months. I was homeless um, over in North Minneapolis and just turned myself in, and I ended up doing a year in the Hennepin County Homeschool, and that kind of gave me the ability. I met some people, a couple people that uh, took an interest in me and the stuff that I had gone through, kind of mentored me through the kind of mentorship that I do now. Um, Weightlifting was one of the things in the Hennepin County Homeschool. Um, A guy named Arnie um, taught us how to lift and um, really formed a a strong connection with him. And coming out of there, I got adopted, moved to Rice Lake, Wisconsin, um, straight out of Hennepin County, and uh, finished up high school. After high school, um, had some more challenges with addiction, and joined the military, um, Army National Guard, Wisconsin National Guard. Did two tours in Iraq, came back from my second tour in Iraq, and uh, again, kind of repeated that cycle of falling back into old negative habits, um, drinking, using, and ended up um, arrested, incarcerated again for burglary, and so that that led to just under five years of incarceration, which I had two periods where I was out for a brief period of time. Um, during those, during that almost five year incarceration, um, that I just I immediately um, relapsed, started committing crimes again, ended ended up locked back up. So my final release was. 2015, end of 2015, and um, the last maybe like third of my incarceration, I really just, I did a lot of um, solitary confinement, and in that period, I kind of came to the, the point where it was either, you know, I was going to, I mean, to not, you know, sugarcoat it, I was going to kill myself, or I was going to change, and I had a Vietnam veteran that was my mentor at that time, and he really, you know, just in his co- remaining consistent with me, um, his words really pushed me towards the the, the um, side of changing, and I just I just decided um, at that time that I was just going to add value rather than taking it away from other people. Um, despite how I felt, I was still angry, but I just felt that you know I had become as big of a part of the problem as I had experienced when I was young, and so that. Uh, was... Uh,
0: you had kind of a turning point while you were in solitary. Is that one of the big things? Is that where you pinpoint? Where this change in your outlook on what your potential was is that when that happened?
1: I think I think that it was happening um, in the lead up to solitary. I was, you know, I was working out a lot. I was really regimented. I kind of had snapped back into that soldier mindset because I felt like I was at I was at odds with the the legal system. I was at odds with other people incarcerated, and so I worked out. I stayed ready. Um, part of that was, you know, PTSD. I'm I'm seventy percent service connected for post traumatic stress disorder. And um, I think that you know my mindset really just changed when I went into solitary confinement because I had I had basically exhausted all other alternatives of getting this this emotion out that was locked inside me. And so in solitary, I just realized that it wasn't about you know enacting something on the world to get this emotion out. It was about taking control of it, you know, internally. And um, solitary confinement provided me that opportunity. It doesn't provide everybody that opportunity, though. Hey,
0: you yeah. make it sound like it's a yeah. good thing. So <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I don't. I don't want that to be, you know, in, in any of my wings I was in. Um, we had we had a saying that you know guys either come out really really crazy or they make you so crazy that you go sane when it comes to solitary confinement, and um, the former the former really is the uh, the majority. So
0: how, when did you actually get released from
1: confinement last time? Uh, December, like December 27th or something like that of um, 2015. So I got released from Dodge Correctional Institution.
0: And now you, even today, you're still, quote unquote, on paper. Is that right?
1: Yes, sir. Yep I, uh, I am on paper until 2031, I believe it is.
0: All right. And so for our listeners, that means you're on extended supervision, which is what happens after you have a term of initial confinement in the Wisconsin State Prison. Just just out of curiosity, David, did you you said that this kind of um, overlapped with uh, a period of time that you were in the military? Did you have any like court martial or or trouble with military discipline being uh, imposed on you?
1: Yeah, I had uh, in the very beginning of my military service, I, uh, I got a company grade Article 15, which is it basically is handled within the within the company. And um, that was actually a wake up call for me because I took I took my service really seriously. And so after that, I actually quit drinking. Um, I quit drinking. I really focused on my soldiering and um, I really excelled. Um, in my unit so yeah I had one that was the only oh no that was not the only one that was the first (laughs) after after my second tour then so when I was already on my downward spiral I got a um another this was a field grade which is a much uh, more serious article 15 in Japan of all places um is where I got I got that I got it for getting in a fight um in the airport
0: David. All right. So you, you got out and became like a quote unquote, you know, civilian, uh, not incarcerated person, so to speak in 2015. And, you know, I, I know this, but I would really like to tell our listening audience that, um, you have just completed, I believe your first year of law school. And congratulations for that. And I also just happen to know because you and I have talked that, this coming Monday, you're starting. Um, is it an internship at the public defender's office? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um... Good for you. <laughs> Get ready for a roller coaster ride. <laughs> so, all right. Awesome. Well, um, thanks for the thanks for that background. It's you know when I saw you speak, I was I know you had some slides and things and pictures, and it was just really so interesting and you know compelling to see how this whole sort of series of events had unfolded in your life and how you know it it's hard to say how a lot of these things happen but I think you know it's pretty clear in your situation that it was a number of different compounding factors that in a lot of ways society had just really let you down hadn't been there for you and you know a lack of support generally was something that contributed to that was my sense but we did take a break, and we'll be right back after
2: these messages. And we are back with more legal defense and special guest David Carlson. David, what's the um, uh, the name of their organization? Uh, the uh, Peer Support Mentorship or- Organization is CC We
1: Adapt. Um, the
2: CC stands for Carlson
1: Consultants. That's our legal name with the state.
2: So, is it is it statewide, or is it just in like a couple of counties, or what's what's the story?
1: Currently, we're in 14 counties um, providing services, and we have six counties right now that we just are in the negotiation process of forming the the contract. So we're just about there. We'll be in 20 here. So 20 counties total, probably within about two months.
2: So, so after law school, is, it your, is it your plan to um, keep that going or keep your hand in it or hand it off to somebody else or you're going to be a practicing lawyer or what?
1: I'm not sure. So, you know, for me being on supervision, having my background, I'll have to, um, you know, kind of what I've been told, I'll have to plead my case for why I should be admitted into the bar. So I'm not even sure if I'll be able to practice um, right now, but if I am able to practice, I want to use that within the agency. I got, we, we advocate for a lot of individuals, a lot of our participants, both uh, youth and adults who are in circumstances where they're being pushed around and it, in some cases, it's direct rights violations. Um, I, was in, I was in an office with a student resource officer and a principal, and the student was actually bringing a, bringing a complaint about something that had happened to them. And the student resource officer was, was basically intimidating them with a full uniform, uh, bulletproof vest on, weapon on their side. It was, it was an extremely <sighs> coercive environment. And if I had not been there, what, what would the result of that have been? And so like situations like that, I just want to know and have the ability to represent um, our participants much more effectively. If there an uh, an opportunity to really push back on, on those types of things.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Um, You know, the the ride going on is a very familiar one to um, anybody who's practiced criminal defense uh, or worked in the criminal legal system um, for any length of time, like Kirk and I have. And, uh, Um, and, and it's something that we constantly tell judges, which is, you know what, this is, this is a journey and people are going to fall and, you know, and addiction is, is something that grips you so tightly. It might hide in the bushes for a minute, but as soon as you're back on the road, it's going to jump out and get you. And, um, and, and some judges are very receptive to that and some are just like, you know, have this very hardcore attitude. So, you know, what you're, it seems what you're doing is, 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 uh, not only directly beneficial to these folks, but kind of educational to, you know, the larger legal community. I don't know. Would you say that's, that that is at least, at least part of the mission? Absolutely. And that's, um, in
1: my classes this last year in uh, Mitchell Hamlin school of law is where is where I attend. Um, I come into a lot, I mean, the majority of the, of my classmates, I mean, almost all of them, I don't think anybody has the experiences I have, but there's also a large majority that have certain viewpoints that are, that are contrary to a person succeeding if they come from a certain type of background. And, you know, what I kind of, what I kind of try to stress in those debates is what is the outcome that we want? So in the moment we can, you know, we can enact our anger, we can enact our our revenge or punishment on people, but does that does that achieve the outcome that we're looking for, which is a safer society? And it doesn't. In, in very few cases, does it? And so, if if you do want a person to be able to make it to the point where now they're giving back to the community, I think that one of the big um, pieces that I had that others don't was the was the veteran uh, resources. So I came back. People looked at me as a as a veteran or as a hero. In, in a lot of senses. And so when I got out of prison, I had those resources. And so with those resources, that enabled me to make it through, you know, all of the stress that comes with coming back from prison and coming back right back from deployment. And so I think that um, that's if, – if we're really focused on outcomes and we want public safety, that's the approach that we all need to start taking.
2: Yeah, you know, like, I mean, the, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that's always the mantra – of a lot of um, politicians and uh, just like general debaters about criminal, the criminal legal system and incarceration as a model for corrections to, to change somebody's behavior, of course, not taking into account, you know, where they came from, the circumstances, uh, discrimination, that sort of thing, you know, class, you know, disparities. Um, uh, but, you you know that's 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 the sort of thing that that um, I think a lot of people um, when they make those arguments they're missing that human element. I think you're bringing that human element to folks. Um, I don't know if it's going to touch anybody's heart, <laughs> but I guess all we can do is try. Well, what, one thing that um, has been discussed,
0: in, at least in our community here in Cheboygan, is the fact that we have. A lot of government agencies that do a lot of things and sort of interact in ways to try and achieve exactly what David's talking about, this bigger concept of public safety. And it occurs to me, and I think this is something that, you know, David is really trying to advance, is that, uh, you know, formerly incarcerated people have a role in that process and should be included in that process. You know, we have uh, committees that are part of the county board government. Uh, There are all sorts of um, official governmental entities that invite public participants to be part of different committees and things like that. And one of the things I intend to, to do as part of my public service to my community is to make sure that when we have discussions for policymakers and lawmakers, that they include the perspective of people that are continuing to suffer from the stigma of having been convicted uh, in the past. And and much like what uh, Mr. Carlson here is talking about, he mentioned that he's not sure, you know, if he'll even be able to practice law because of his criminal record. And that's a very good point. He has to pass a, you know, fitness, uh, you know, character fitness examination. I know that that's something that is entirely possible and not insurmountable, but um, it's something that... For the rest of his life and and when people are felons they have to deal with you know that that labeling that branding for the rest of their lives in one way or another i mean it's never quite the same and one of the things that um i think is very important is that we get that perspective it's if we're talking about you know how we address some of these uh justice issues how we address policy issues including what do we do about mass incarceration what do we do about How funding for many programs that are available for diversion, uh, oftentimes the first ones on the chopping block when it comes to whoever happens to be um, working with budgets. And and David's done a brilliant thing by not ask not begging for money (laughs) from from counties, but by uh, being a for profit business, and they contract with him, which I think is. Brilliant, <laughs> utterly brilliant to provide a service that they they don't have to necessarily, um, you know, find the personnel because he's providing it. He's providing the the atmosphere. He's providing the basis for it. And they're more than willing to pay. And um, I was just very impressed with that whole notion. But um, so, Kirk, you so know, one, you one of the things the- is we do have a uh, just one more thing. John. We have. um I'm involved in a couple of different committees that are that involve judges, prosecutors, um, and so forth as part of the local county bar, as well as the um, local county government. And we're addressing um, a number of issues that are plainly uh, not inclusive of, of that perspective. And when we try and uh, when I hear some of these um, policymakers that are trying to account for what's the best way to do A, B, and C. It it almost always seems like there is not a face to, um, you know, that mysterious element out there of people that have committed crimes in the past. And, you know, if you, I've, I've talked to David a couple times, I saw him speak in person and I think he's the kind of person that, um, really stands as a great example of the fact that, um, we're talking about human beings. We're not talking about just a label, just somebody that, that messed up in the past and forever is disqualified from participating in society, um, you know, the way that, that other people get to enjoy. And that needs to be accounted for. So one thing that I'm particularly um, excited about, not, not that it's, that's not the right word, but uh, David has caught on to the fact that there are, I'm guessing thousands of people throughout our state Who are eligible to vote but are incarcerated and cannot and what and I hadn't really thought about it that hard until I saw uh, David's presentation and he talked about the efforts that they were doing to try and make sure that people who are eligible to vote but yet are incarcerated are being helped first of all to know that they can but secondly all the the hurdles that are in the way for that so we're going to have to take a break right now for a commercial message, but I'd like to dive into that when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back to legal defense. Uh, our guest is David Carlson. Um, David, when I when I saw your speech last week and you were talking about how you had undergone um, some very specific efforts to identify uh, in some of those Western counties that you, you, you were talking about, there are, in fact, uh, people that are incarcerated, In in local county jails That are eligible to vote But because of the mechanics of the whole process Simply can't and and what we're talking about Just so the listening audience understands Just because someone's incarcerated Does not mean that they can't vote Because there are many people that are Awaiting trial Or awaiting disposition they've been convicted Of nothing or their past Includes only misdemeanors so the, The thing that makes it so someone Cannot vote in Wisconsin Anyway is that uh, if they have a felony conviction and they haven't finished serving their term. So uh, Mr. Carlson's a good example of somebody who, even though he's not incarcerated right now, he can't vote until he's done with his extended supervision. But think back to how many people are sitting inside of the jails throughout this state that have not been convicted of a felony. And this leads into this whole issue about the fact that we're seeing much more much more incarceration of people pre trial. And the events that happened in the Waukesha Parade incident are not helping that issue at all because many lawmakers are seeking to statutorily increase presumptive minimum amounts of cash, which is utterly ridiculous because every person has different, uh, you know, a different history, a different situation, different financial processes in order to try and make this uniform in some way, I think is just another way of, you know, trying to gain political points, but um, it just, it didn't really occur to me how many people we're probably talking about here, but David, it's, it's probably thousands of people, right?
1: I mean, throughout the state. Yeah. So in 72 counties, each county has its own jail or its own holding facility. Um, you can have anywhere, anywhere of upwards 13,000 individuals incarcerated at any given time in these jails And upwards of half of them are still eligible to vote. This is according to all voting is local in the Wisconsin or uh, ACLU of Wisconsin's jail-based voting toolkit. Uh, They took the Mm -hmm. data on that.
0: Well, why was this something that you found particularly interesting that you wanted to get involved with?
1: Because in, in the work that I do as a peer supporter and as a mentor and coming from the background that I came from, the very first thing that I needed to recover was to find my voice. As an individual, if you can't if you can't speak on what's happening to you and feel validated in the fact that the things that have occurred are wrong and that that the way that you're reacting to them is, is is rational based on your circumstances, then there's there's not much of a chance for you ever to recover. It's the same thing as a community. So if we have a community of people who are incarcerated, that their political voice is their vote, but they can't they can't take part in political political action, they can't speak to what is it that got me locked up in the first place? Well, then how are we electing the people who are gonna have the best ideas of how to reduce the individuals um, ending up incarcerated or how to increase public safety in the first place? Like we need that voice is going to be good for everybody. if If individuals in jail, individuals, I would say individuals in general can vote, but right now for the population that is eligible, if they can vote, it will benefit everybody.
2: Maybe that's one of the most critical areas uh, for advo- advocacy uh, because as we know as we all have seen after the last presidential election massive attempts at voter suppression all across the country and all sorts of silly reasons and you know they're just uh, ginning up anything they can to uh, reduce the voting population and you know um, uh, incarceration is is a is a a storied, long-held one, especially being a felon or, you know, there's obviously there's hundreds of negative um, consequences uh, to being a felon, but not being able to vote while you're on parole or uh, you know, extended supervision in Wisconsin is insane to me. And, um, and there's one state, and I do not remember which one, but you probably know, that you can vote while you're incarcerated, while you're in prison. Uh, we were just I, talking about it today, and I forgot what state it was. <laughs> it's not this one. No, it's not. All I'm saying is, I think that everybody incarcerated, period, should be able to vote. I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of a ridiculous, um, uh, you know, marker to 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 draw that line, and it makes no sense. Uh, to, they just suddenly like? Not have opinions, they 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 get no say in society anymore. Well, then how are how are they going to like function when they get out? How are they, you know? Right. I mean, um, it's 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 literally insane, you know. It's it's the same thing with um, uh, you know, and maybe this is not the best comparison, but it's the same thing with uh, felons not being able to have firearms, you know. Um, and and you know, it and, and the whole long lists of uh, you know, it's it's called the civil death penalty. Where you know you you come out of prison and you're you know uh, branded for life and you know you have all these rules you got to follow which you know all too well. So do you have any thoughts about like trying to advance this um, current effort into anything wider? Yeah, absolutely. So you know we're starting with the, the population that right
1: now their rights are being violated by county jails not having a process in place. Um, but I would, I would love to see it expanded to everybody. You're absolutely right. That we're missing one of the most important segments of our society in terms of dealing with some of the issues that every single community is struggling with. And I'll give you an example. I was just in a meeting today about the American Relief, uh, American Rescue Plan Act um, money that each county has, right? And they're trying to figure out how to dis- disperse it to meet the prim- primary objectives, right? The primary are the, the main priorities that ARPA funding is sent to the counties for, for COVID relief. And um, in those rooms, in these conversations, I'm able to go through the programming that has already been, because the first thing that, that county officials will come out with, well, this is all the programming that we've implemented that works. Well, no, in this county, it actually hasn't worked. I know because I've gone through it. I know because I'm in the population of people that you've served, and it's, it's failed horribly. It's, it's worked in terms of the data you keep before a person goes back into the community. And then what their outcome is, that's completely disregarded. And so in situations like this, we're, we're able to advocate for a, a smarter use of taxpayer money. This is what we adapt is all about. We, 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 it is really bipartisan in terms of the support we have in our community, because we are very much about using money wisely because then that gets more people on board to support the services that we provide. And so I'm, I've really had a complete new understanding of, of um, you know, what we thought were a, a whole political movement against these types of services, when in reality it's just they're against the, the inefficiency of our government in, in facilitating these services. And so that's where people who are incarcerated, we know in and out what what these service, what incarceration, what jails, prisons, what that living under those conditions does to people, how it harms the family, how it reduces wages all throughout the family, how it gets people stuck on, on welfare, gets them stuck on in a cycle where they can never um, advance or progress financially or otherwise. That's not good for communities anywhere. So, yeah, I think that I think that everybody voting would be a benefit to to the entire entire state and nation.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's such a you know, it's one of the basic things about our being American citizens is that, you know, the very simple act of casting your vote, which, you know, by the way, isn't mandatory. And there's people out there that don't exercise that right for whatever crazy reason. But, you know, it occurs to me sometimes you could be. Um, a person could be um, a racist. They could be someone who is, uh, uh, you know, just a uh, anti societal, you know, bad person and have uh, views that we don't accept or agree with. But that person can vote if they're not a felon. It could be a communist that wants to overthrow the government, and that person can certainly vote, right? So what is it that we think that is wrong with felons in particular where we don't want to hear their voice? Now, we know the truth is that this is a remnant from Jim Crow laws that were all over the country in the past, but the arguments that we hear now and then are things like, Um, I can't remember if it was you, you, David, you or or your friend that spoke last week that talked about, like, who do you think we're going to vote for? Like, you know, people that want to let everyone out of prison and and just have complete mayhem and chaos. That's probably not happening.
2: But (laughs) but. um, Well, you you know, know, restrictions on voting like this are they go back to the founding. So, you know, there was a very small sliver of people in the original United States that were allowed to vote. They were 21 owned property, white males. That was it. And I think, um, you know, it took till well into the 20th century uh, till a lot of those taboos, American Indians, um, uh, uh, four million slave people, women. um, And and even after those barriers were lifted, um, there was still a lot of, well, well, I'm gonna pick this up right after our break. After these messages, and we are back with more John ranting and then allowing David to talk. No, um, <laughs> no we were talking about like we were talking about, you know, how the um, the power structures of, you know, uh, not only the United States, but every state. And, you know, and really, I'm sure this is common throughout history, but they want to keep their power amongst themselves. And and whether it's, you know, white males or just rich people or whatever, um, you know, they, uh, the, that's, that's going to always be present. And so that's part of the reason that, you know, that, you know, like you, you mentioned Jim Crow, well, that's, you know, that, that, that has washed right through this. And it's a direct line right up to mass incarceration and it's a way to control populations. Um, and, uh, so what David appears to be doing is going in and saying, well, you know what, um, Uh, Despite all of that, uh, some of you still have this right. So, you know, educate yourself, go exercise it because things ain't getting better without that.
0: David, I want to ask you, when you've gone uh, through uh, the counties you've worked with and have, uh, I'm assuming that you've been able to find your way into the jails or you've had a, a support staff that have been able to go in and talk to people who are in custody do you encounter a lot of folks that have the right to vote and they don't realize they do because of their circumstance?
1: Yes, um, I mean nearly everybody um, has. There's confusion, and I actually um, one thing that I was going to touch on that I didn't touch on in the in the speech was, you um, know, the one number one thing that that suppresses the vote of individuals who are eligible but are involved in the criminal justice system is simply confusion. Every state is different, you hear different things. When are you actually ineligible? When do you get your eligibility back? And nobody is real clear on explaining those things to people. Um, and so when we go into these events, um, at first it was a struggle getting individuals to, to engage in the event, events, but then my presence is along with my message about why it's important to do, like looking forward into the future. Like right now, people will go to the law library to help their cases, but we need you to think into the future you can go vote to help the resources you're going to have when you get out right and you know it's not a direct line but that's that's what the act is doing and um so yeah people in the for the most part had no idea and especially confusion on when you can't vote any longer so if you're if your conviction could take place before election day you need to not vote while well, there's so much confusion out there about that well can i send my absentee ballot in and then if my absentee ballot goes in, I get convicted, but I didn't know. Well, yeah, that's, that's still an issue. And so there's so much right. gray area that like it's, it's very difficult to work with. And so there's a lot of things that like legislatively need to be fixed.
0: Yeah. I, and that's, that's a very good point, because I think that part of I, I, your efforts are wonderful, but what's happening is you're dealing with these things county by county and what's, and even if you're successful in bringing the education and bringing the, the issue to light. And I, and I've heard you say that you've had uh, to some extent uh, cooperation with some of these counties, but there's always going to be that sheriff that doesn't want to hear from you. And there's going to be that, you know, it's going to vary. And that's a problem when it differs from county to county, we really need legislation or regulatory Changes that, and, and by the way, one thing that would be so simple. You know, we already have this process. I'm David. I'm sure you're familiar with it. You probably had to sign the form yourself that says voter in, ineligibility notice, and they make you sign it. And usually, it's your lawyer who, by the way, in your case was our friend Tony Cotton. I understand. Is that right? He was one of my attorneys. Yep.
2: Tony Cotton was. Yeah, that's my hero right there. He's, that's right. Is and possible. I, <laughs>
0: I've heard you're still in touch with him. Is that right?
1: Yep, yeah, not as much as well, now, but yeah, he's still someone I.
0: Yeah, well, he's he's one of our best friends. I was just yeah. I was pleased yeah, to man. hear that when you told me. But what, what I'm saying is, they you know they got a, a standardized form that's in place that you have to sign, and your lawyer who represented you is usually the witness that says, I saw him sign this, giving him official notice. You can't vote until your civil rights are restored. But does anybody tell you when your civil rights are restored or when you can, is there a process? Is there a form? Is there a letter that they can send you that says, by the way, as of, you know, today, I you can vote a, again.
2: I believe there's a discharge letter, right, David?
0: Well, I remember. a discharge letter that contains you're everything. The whole <laughs> it's not the one page that you sign with a witness, right? You know.
2: No, no, no. Well, I have a I have a different question for you because what you're doing is obviously amazing and admirable, but there's a lot of people not incarcerated who don't, don't want to vote or they feel like it's pointless and the system is rigged. You know, like <laughs> that's a theme on that's a theme for Trump and for Sanders, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, and like across the board, people think, what's the point? What do you say to those folks?
1: Yeah. And that that's where I think that, um, so, so number one for myself up here, I've really, I really leaned on like my, my veteran background. I, I, I very much believe in selfless service, right? So, um, I've appealed to a lot of different people when I do my speaking, um, when I'm in, when I'm engaged in the community about this was my service at that at that time, this is now my service to speak to you about engaging in the vote in the political process because as a civilian, as a citizen of this country, it's your duty, right? That appeals to some people. Um, I think that so for me as a business person now, I really look, I really a lot of times where a lot of people see um, problems, like I'm always looking for solutions, and so for me, it's become well, why aren't the current people who are trying to energize the vote? Why isn't it working? And what I've seen is a lot of times, voting becomes separated from real tangible issues in people's lives, right? So in terms of incarceration, okay, I can talk about this broad thing called mass incarceration, or I can talk about within my county jail, There's 10% to 20% African American population when there's only a 1.2% African American population in this county. Bam. That wakes people up because that is a huge, that is a disproportionate representation of African Americans in this county jail. Why is that happening? Well, it's happening because of systemic, all kinds of systemic factors. And the way that you mitigate those systemic factors is you vote. And so tying it to tangible issues. In your community is super important. I feel like to really energize people, and once again, like I can't remember who said it. Who said it earlier? But the individuals who are directly impacted need to get involved. Need to be invited to the table. Allowed to create their own table because it's their voices that are going to energize
2: people. I think that's an amazing approach. Um, I, uh, I, I I think you are probably. Um, waking up a lot of folks with that sort of um, uh, framing of the issue. Um, and uh, uh, so do you anticipate, you know, being in all 72 counties at some point?
1: Yeah, at this point, um, we're, we're really going to meet the need um, wherever we see the need to be. Um, we found that rural communities have nothing like there's there's there. It's absent of resources. And so we've really been focusing on rural communities quite a bit now. Um, and they're very, they're very like welcoming of, of our services where sometimes getting into some of the larger populations, you have so many different organizations fighting for so few resources. And the gatekeepers are kind of like, you know, well, we'll let you in. We'll let this, you know, we won't let these other people in. And then they try to, they try to co-op your services. And so we're really trying to work our way around those dynamics. Each County is very different. And, um, by the end though, I think that all of we'll be working in all of Wisconsin, I believe.
2: That's amazing. Well, if you do get an into the car, what would you like to do? My um, business law. So I uh,
1: I also have a business called, I'm I, um, am co-owner of a business called Next Generation Properties and we opened it because of we adapt. We have housing people, right? And the counties will say that, you know, well, we're, we're starting this housing programming The problem is counties don't have relationships with landlords because counties try to dump a bunch of garbage on landlords and people have thought it historically that it's been the other way around. My experience in this area is the landlords are not the ones at fault. Um, But that said, we we bought a house in Chippewa County, I partnered with uh, Nick Bruner, he's the owner of uh, People First Property Management, opened our own business, bought a house. We're providing programming in-home in peer support to really teach independent skill living or independent living skills. So if you take an individual coming from addiction, you take an individual like myself who didn't live by themselves, wasn't responsible in the home, like I didn't have that example, the peer support element day by day provides a structure of this is how you maintain a home, bring the garbage out on garbage day mow the lawn, these are small things that you start with. Then you move into financial literacy. We're, we're partnering with RCU up here, Royal Credit Union, to do financial literacy specific to the individual in the programming. We just put earnest money down on a second house here in Eau Claire and we're gonna do the same thing. And really it's just, we're trying to provide because the county, the, our county here isn't doing it. And so in the community, there is a there is a will to, to solve these issues. And so we're partnering with people in the community and private settings to create these resources.
0: For the we, can, uh, we, got, we got to wrap things up, I'm afraid, but uh, David, we can't thank you enough for being part of the show and, and really kind of getting into the details about these issues and the great work that you're doing. We wish you the best of success in the future. And Absolutely. we hope you stay, we hope you stay in touch. So uh, that'll do it for this episode of legal offense with Kirk and John tune in next week, as you can, Every single week, right here in 1330 at 101.5 WHBL. It's Legal Offense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.